Today on Ad Passion and Stir, we're going to hear from Claire Reichenbach, the CEO of the James Beard Foundation. Where we really make a difference is when we bring those worlds together. So where pleasure meets purpose. And it's that intersection that we are really operating at. The evolution of the the concept of pleasure and purpose is our new mantra of good food for good. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. This is our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. And we're in New York City today with Claire Reichenbach, who I am so excited to not only have on the podcast, but to finally meet, because Claire is the CEO of the James Beard Foundation, one of the most important organizations in food, uh, one of the most important organizations in terms of celebrating and elevating chefs uh, so that people understand more about food and its role in their lives. And it feels like the best job in the world, Claire. Um, and I want to under- learn a little bit about how you got it and, and so forth. But welcome to Add Passion and Stir. Thank you so much, Billy. It's a great pleasure to be here. And yes, indeed, it is the best job in the world. I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to have it. We were just talking, I was asking because of your British accent, yeah. uh, where you're from, and you said London, and uh, you'd worked uh, for the BBC and then come to the United States for the BBC. Mm-hmm. What was that job. And just tell us a little bit about where your career started. Yeah, so I started life as a strategy consultant, management consultant um, out of university. And that was a very privileged role, really, insofar as being a young graduate working across very diverse, different industries and being exposed to a whole breadth of of business issues and getting skilled with a business toolkit that had um, broad applicability across different business sectors and different business challenges. Um, So coming out of that, I enjoyed it, but it was you know, the world of consulting is you're always on the road, etc. And so I wanted to join an organization where I could really stay and thrive. Um, and I'd always loved the media sector. I'd love the BBC and what it represents in the UK. Uh, so I joined the BBC pretty early on in my career in the capacity of, of strategy and business development. Um, so that was, uh, again, it, it was a wonderful organization. And uh, my uh, remit How many was, years were you there? I was there uh, about 15 years. Really? Yeah. 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 Um, in different guises. I worked for the public service arm and then I moved to the commercial arm, which was uh, I love because it was reconciling um, the creative arts, but with a business rigor. And I, I love bringing those different worlds together. So uh, my remit was uh, looking at the global strategy and how do we really grow the BBC brand outside the UK. Uh, and then part of that was to say, well, if we really want to be a, a global organization, we should double down in the US. And that was the the opportunity to come over here. And it seems like you were moderately successful in growing that brand in the US, right? I mean, it's been incredible. The BBC is well known for the news, uh, and that is you know, it's, its global power. And our remit was really to um, broaden the, the appreciation for the BBC in its entirety. And yeah, we built a good footprint here, the team, the team and I. Uh, and it was a kind of... A, a small, it's kind of a microcosm of a big media company. And so far, there was a production operation, big sales and distribution, uh, networks, etc. So it had all those different elements. So it was, uh, it was a great opportunity. People who listen to Add Passion and Stir, uh, most will probably know who James Beard is and why the foundation is named after him, but not everybody will. So just tell us a little bit about James Beard. Yes, 
James Beard. Uh, so he was known as America's first foodie. He was a very prolific cookbook writer and a uh, a mentor of chefs. He wasn't a restaurant chef himself, but a very, very accomplished and passionate home cook. He was an educator. He held numerous educational sessions and culinary school activity at the James Beard House, which we can talk a bit more about. But he was actually a very early proponent of what we now call farm to table, celebrating seasonality and really celebrating um, sustainable sourcing too. So, So in the vanguard of a lot of that. And in the 40s and 50s, 60s, when much of America was looking to Europe um, for inspiration around food and haute cuisine, he was celebrating American talent and American resource and American community in that regard. Uh, so he, he was very um, driven to put uh, the culinary arts on the same footing as the performing arts and really to elevate it as an industry and as a profession. And so when he died, the industry convened and said, we need to enshrine his legacy uh, in the foundation. And thus the foundation was born, really with the explicit remit of that continuous professionalization. Uh, and a core component of that is obviously the James Beard Awards, which is that accreditation, the, the standard bearer of excellence within the industry. Um, it is called the Oscars of the food world. Uh, again, in recognition of trying to elevate this profession in the same way as as the performing arts. The second element of that professionalization was providing a performance space for chefs, which is the James Beard House in the yes. West Village, close to where we are today, uh, where we hold almost 200 dinners a year. So chefs and their teams come to cook at the James Beard House and it gives them a very unique opportunity to showcase what is quintessentially um, their offering and what they represent. And it's, it's it can be a very emotional journey for them because they are cooking in the same place that their, their heroes and have cooked before. So that that's a, a very important part of what we do. And then the third element of the professionalization uh, was around scholarships. And we've invested over $8 million in, in the next generation of culinary talent. Uh, scholarships for them to be able to go to culinary school and apprentice and correct, things like that. Correct, correct. Yeah. So how many chefs have had the, on an annual basis, how many chefs would have the opportunity to actually cook at the James Beard House, just roughly? So, so if there are about 200 dinners, so uh, and there are lots of, culinary mashups. So we really try, we look for interesting ways to bring together unusual collaborations or juxtapositions or chefs who want, who have been admiring of other chefs or cuisines that you wouldn't actually put together. So it's, it's an order of magnitude of that 200. So it's probably three times that. I'm struck by how many things the James Beard Foundation is able to do and how many it's able to do well, uh, which is unusual for an organization. So you've got these fabulous dinners. The James Beard Awards have, you know, they've, they've really changed what it means to be a chef. When they first introduced the Humanitarian Award, right. I got the first Humanitarian Award, which was a great honor. And it's created so many great opportunities yeah. in terms of meeting other people in the industry. But I know so many chefs who have been, you know, nominated year after year and then their year comes up where they've won and it changes their business and it changes their social media footprint. It's just, it's, it's really powerful and there's no other recognition like it in the, in the food world. It is a powerful currency and it's one that we are very intentional in terms of how do we ensure that, that the, the currency doesn't 
deflate or inflate? Uh, how do we protect it and ensure the relevancy of that going forward? Our mantra at the foundation is good food for good. And so I think we're probably best known for the good food element. Uh, increasingly, though, we're putting greater emphasis on what we're doing to support a better food system. And we've seen that starting to influence our thoughts around the, the awards. I, when I stepped into this role, which was almost two years ago to the day, it was right in the middle of the, the Me Too movement. You know, we have a responsibility in terms of issuing these awards to make sure that we're taking a holistic view. Uh, and therefore, we introduced a, a new lens in terms of culture and conduct to those awards. But you're right, they can be absolutely life changing. There are, there are many case studies in terms of that seal of approval, that external validation, that increased profile um, has really shored up businesses. Um, the story, you know, Zahav last year uh, won that standing restaurant of the year, the, their phones were ringing off the hook that night, oh, with like yeah. 2000 messages for resume. So we've got some it, you can see how it can it can really shore up or change the fortunes of of the winners and it's not just the restaurant chef awards um, we also have the media awards here in new york city at the at the end of the end of april which is again for um food uh food media broadcast journalism books digital and then we have a third category called the leadership awards which is really celebrating and elevating uh people who are thought leaders and visionaries in the broader food ecosystem so not necessarily chefs and restaurateurs but folk who, who are uh really in the kind of social justice element or representing uh labor rights or um, promoting better policy um so it's quite a nice complement of those three awards but as you say the recipients of those awards um it, it's, it's, it's very powerful. Well, the thing that I think I appreciated the most about receiving the award is then you get to vote in future Indeed. years. And so I still vote <laughs> and I great. take it very seriously. Thank you very much. Right? I mean, and there's, a, I was going to ask you, how, there's a lot of categories, right? There's Best Chef Northeast, Best Chef Southeast. Yeah. Uh, and Things lots over of 50 and, win. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it's a real piece of work to sit down. You have to carve out some time and sit down and be thoughtful about it. And of course, you can't know everybody. So there's yeah. some that I pass on every year but um it's it's really fun to see who's up and coming and to see who is likely to be you know kind of a future leader in the industry yeah well thank you for your ongoing involvement but you're absolutely right so previous winners then fall into the new judging pool and one thing we're excited about around the awards is our prioritization of, of diversity and inclusion and a few years ago we um we issued a new directive to the committee it's a very robust uh, rigorous committee system that underpins all of the awards um but we wanted to ensure that uh, we were, again, using that powerful currency as responsibly as possible and making sure that we were we are shining a light uh, across the industry in its full breadth and diversity. So we asked uh, the committees to really look at their composition and ensure that going forward that they are, they are themselves as representative um, in line with the census um, and that uh, we're being really intentional about who we are evaluating and, and putting forward. And it was it was so gratifying and rewarding to see at the awards last year just the the diversity on stage. So we're we're keen to continue in that vein. Yeah, it, it, you know it's it's so important for so many reasons. Two of the um, guests we've had on Add Passion and Stir uh, very recently, um, we had um, Chef Rose Noel, who is uh, Danny Meyer's uh, new restaurant in Washington yeah. D.C. Mylene Omari, chef, a child of uh, Haitian parents and I was asking her whether being a, a, a woman, being a woman of color had in any way uh, created challenges for her. And she said, you know, she said, I honestly never really thought about it until 
you know, I'd raised that question, she said, but now, until I'd heard that question, she said, now being in the position I'm in, yeah. I see how important it is for all of the industry leaders to be reaching out to others, to be reaching down yeah. into cooking schools, into high schools, and to let people know that there's opportunities for you. We also had um, Marcus Samuelson yeah. on, and he talked about, you know, uh, when he was apprenticing and kind of stodging in restaurants, you know, and he was telling people he wanted to be a chef, his experience was quite the opposite. He said almost everywhere he went, people said, well, you know, nobody looks like you. It's not going to be easy. And of course, he found that as a motivator. In his case, that you yes, know, motivated that him to strive even harder. But I think everybody is probably so grateful that the Beard Foundation is taking a leadership role on this and that there's a likelihood that we will have more diversity in the industry going it's forward. It's absolutely mission critical. It really is. And one of the areas that we have been, uh, we're doubling down on is supporting uh, women in leadership positions. It's something the foundation has um, been supporting for a long time. Uh, but as we look at the industry and we look at the the stats in terms of uh, women's ability to, to, to really get to positions of seniority and ownership, um, that's where we think there's the, the kind of the biggest gap. There's not a pipeline problem. Um, over 50% of culinary students are women and then it just really drops off. So uh, we have built a, um, a really compelling portfolio of initiatives to support women in culinary. Most recently, a program called Owning It and uh, making available this, this great training for a day, day and a half for early entrepreneurs, nascent entrepreneurs, women who are wanting to get into the, into the business of ownership. Uh, and it's a, it's, it's a very concentrated day of visioning of, of business financial literacy and then helping them really understand how they can present their points, their diff- how they differentiate. Um, and, and then we link them with local funders. So that's a really interesting program that we're doing that we're seeing bearing a lot of fruit. And it complements another program we have with Babson College, which is our Women in Entrepreneurial Leadership Program, where we take 20 women uh, for a week of it's like an it's like a condensed MBA with a with a culinary lens, and some of the stories coming out of the of the women who've been through this are phenomenal. Not only has it been game changing in terms of helping them grow and develop and scale their businesses, but just the networks that come out of those um, very intensive weeks um, is amazing. And th- these these women really they really use each other as a phenomenal resource. And you do this at Babson in Boston? They yes, go there? correct. So yeah. it's in Bab- it's in Boston. In fact, last year we did it in San Francisco, but we're going back to Boston this year. And if okay. any of your listeners are interested, I would I would strongly encourage them to apply. Fantastic. So when you think about the things we're talking about here, yeah. we're talking about the awards, we're talking about this program, we're talking about uh, you mentioned Me Too and the James Beard House, and then there's also the boot camp yeah. uh, for chefs, which I'm going to ask yes. you to say a, a word about in a moment. But so when you, I guess. When you try to uh, crystallize it all into the mission of the James yeah. Beard Foundation, how do you think about that? How do you is is there a way to say what your number one priority is, or is that overly simplifying? Well, you're right insofar as we offer a very rich portfolio of events, initiatives, awards, programs, etc. And when I joined, I for my own purpose, I was like, well, how what what's the organizing principle here? Because there's an awful lot of great stuff, but what does it ladder up to? And so I started with the premise of we do a lot in the kind of in the pleasure realm in terms of gastronomy and deliciousness and these phenomenal dining events. And then we do a, a really impressive work in the purpose space um, in terms of our boot camps, in terms of our initiatives around sustainability, diversity, etc. But what I found was actually where we really make a difference is when we bring those worlds together. So where pleasure meets purpose. And it's that intersection that we are really operating at. So if you think 
think about from a competitor perspective, there are lots of people in the pure pleasure dining space. There are a lot of pure play nonprofits in the mission space, but very few legitimately unite those worlds. So the evolution of the the concept of pleasure and purpose is our new mantra of good food for good. Uh, so that is our that's that is our galvanizing objective. So this is why they recruited you, right? This is the, I mean, this is the strategy and the integration that you've really brought to this, which is, I think, very powerful. Well, it's it's very gratifying to see it borne out. I mean, as as you know well, Billy, this the the food landscape is is gloriously rich and diverse, but you could end up being quite dissipated with one's efforts. Um, so when we think about the for good, we've tried to be really disciplined in terms of where can we, the James Beard Foundation, make a unique difference, uh, at, coupled with what are the issues that are really animating our community, the chef community. We're a chef first organization. And so where those worlds meet in terms of the areas that our community truly care about and we can make a real difference, that's what's informed our current priorities, although that is dynamic and shifting. So right now we are, as I said, we're doing a lot around sustainable seafood. We have this powerful program called um, Smart Catch, uh, which we can we can talk about. Um, so we do a lot around sustainable proteins and then we are doing a lot around women's leadership and we're just building out a new mentorship program for people of colour. So there are current priorities um but but we've always um we always have our ear to the ground in terms of what are those other issues that we feel we can really put our shoulder behind so talk about sustainable seafood is that about teaching those in the industry how to um you know conduct their business in a way that keeps our seafood supplies sustainable and doesn't deplete them yes so i think the stat is something like 90 percent of seafood is consumed in restaurants so that is the nexus where you can make a difference so we're working with um, chefs and restaurateurs to really help them in line with the monterey bay um, accreditation to say how do you either eliminate or minimize a number of red listed fish the endangered species helping them with menu design helping them with relationships and connections to suppliers and distributors to ensure that's sustainable um, supply uh, so there's so we work with the chefs but also we we want to educate the consumer so hence there's the the kind of the smart catch um, brand it's a, it's a it's a pretty opaque world and as a consumer it's hard to, to hard, navigate right? How would you know? so we're really trying to help with that so all of this has kind of um, taken place against the backdrop of chefs over the last decade or two really becoming celebrities uh, in a major way. And is that um, is that a good thing? Is that a double-edged sword? How do you think about it? You help make some of them celebrities, so I, I'm sure you don't think it's a bad thing. But I'm just wondering um, what you think it means for food. Well, I think this is aligned to your organization, too, in terms of recognizing the unique influence that many chefs have. So I think whether it's it's celebrity or agency, they certainly have profile. They are trusted in a way that is uh, that is kind of unparalleled. Um, and they have a means of convening. And they literally can help shape public taste and opinion. Um, and so it is, it's that concept and that recognition of this agency that, that chefs have uniquely uh, that inspired the chefs bootcamp for policy and change, Billy, that you referred to earlier. Um, this was pioneered by uh, Michel Nishan from... Mm-hmm. Uh, from no, Wholesome Wave. From Wholesome yes. Wave. Um, and Eric Kessler from Arabella Advisors, who's on our board. And the model is to take 
10, 15 activist-minded chefs, so those who are um, who are politically uh, inclined or, or actually want to want to harness and deploy their influence for good. Um, and we take them away for two or three intensive days on a farm where we train them up with experts from DC uh, in terms of a particular policy that is um, that is pertinent uh, and current. So we've been doing a lot recently in terms of the farm bill and uh, and food stamps. So there's a deep dive into a particular policy area. And then in to complement that, we, um, do, we, we train them in terms of how to be an effective advocate. Um, how do you mount a campaign? What is a, what is a communication strategy? How do you approach your representative? If you're going to Capitol Hill, what does that really entail? What does that look like? How do you engage your community around this? Um, and so we have done, we have now 300 alum um, of this of this boot camp. So we've got this like army of change makers, uh, which is which is very enthralling. And in fact, just last year, we had our first ever Chefs Action Summit, where we reconvened 150 of those alum to reinvigorate them um, in light of this election year ahead, really focusing on what are the, you know, as we know, food uh, is on the agenda like never before and is more political than ever before. And as we think about the issues that we are grappling with today, whether it is environmental health, societal health, human health, food is part of that equation, both in terms of part of the, often part of the problem, but but part of the solution. So how do we use our community um, of chefs to help drive positive change through food? And this is one of the areas where I feel like our worlds overlap the yeah. most in a very positive way. Indeed. We've gotten very involved in advocacy. We're using chefs the same way. We probably use them more at the state level mm-hmm. than at the federal level, but we also have them come to Washington and um, and talk to members of Congress. But we have found that when it's for, with governors, when it's with state legislators, to the point we were making earlier, to some degree, chefs are such celebrities that politicians want to have their pictures taken with them. They <laughs> do. And they them. want to dine at their restaurants. And they want to dine at their restaurants. <laughs> they want to be able to get reservations. Yeah, we'll but, take it. But, but I think they also are able to talk about these food issues in, a, in an authentic way and not as a paid lobbyist Correct. or as somebody who, um, frankly, is a kind of a, a nonprofit uh, policy wonk, which is well, the way some people might describe me. Uh, but, you know, they bring that authenticity of of, you know, growing up in a food culture and really understanding the ramifications exactly. of everything from farm to table and sustainability to what uh, snap food stamp benefits mean to a family. So yeah. they've been very, very effective that way. Yeah, really compelling because, as you say, it's, it's a more pure agenda, um, but they're absolutely on the, the coal face of that. But also I think in terms of food being, you know, powerful – it's an easier on-ramp for, for the consumer in terms of getting involved with these issues because each you know individual choices can make a real difference in aggregate. So um, that interface between the chef and the consumer is important too. And one of the things we found, I'm curious how you handle this, one of the things we found at Share Our Strength and, and have come to understand is that nonprofit organizations are actually allowed to be political. There's lots of things they can do, particularly around uh, advocacy, around get out the vote, that types of thing. Uh, we tend to be as political as we can be without necessarily being partisan. Uh, we don't think it's our role to be yes. partisan, and yeah. I think it would probably be counterproductive uh, if we were, and it would probably cross some legal lines. How do you think about that? Well, with, your approach with chimes with ours too. We're, we are overtly non-partisan, um, but we we want to enable and facilitate our chefs to pursue the areas that they are they're most interested in. So we don't dictate those subjects. We don't take a line on it per se, but we want to we want to bolster and enable them to to pursue that. 
And do, are, are there any instances where your chefs or your stakeholders feel like you've gone too far being political, that they're not really like, I'm a cook, that's what I do, I don't want to get involved in this conversation? Well, I think it's people engage with us at the level they want to. They've um, it, yeah. yeah, they okay. have. So, um, you know, they're, if 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 chefs want to cook at the Beard House and, and that for them is how they want to engage with the foundation, that's great. If those who want to really get immersed in all that we're doing around sustainability, fantastic. If those activist-minded ones want to come to the boot camp. So it's, I think it's, uh, there, are, there are different flavors of, of engagement. Although what I, what I would say, though, is, our principles around sustainable seafood, about food waste reduction, etc., and representation now run through everything we do. Um, so whether it's the dinners at the house or the events we hold around the country or the, the awards, um, we're really walking the talk on that. Um, anything about this job just two years in, uh, which is still not very long, but anything about it that have surprised you? And it's kind of like, wow, I didn't realize that was going to be part of it. Well, actually, the what we're talking about in terms of um, the power of chefs to drive change, um, you know, I, ha- I had that conceptually uh, in my head and I kind of got it and, and growing up in the UK with Jamie Oliver, who was, a, you know, an early campaigner. But I was... Um, it was very powerful being actually that one of the first things I did when I joined was to to go on a boot camp it was literally in my first month um and I was blown away by it actually and it it uh it was it was it was galvanizing but it gave me such hope I was like because some of these issues feel so intractable um but then thinking oh my god actually the role of food the platform we as a foundation have and the, the and the ability for this community to properly make a positive dent in the world uh, was is really inspiring and i'd underestimated that one of the things that we're always trying to convey at share strength is some of these problems that we work on to the point you were just making are actually solvable problems certainly in the in the realm of hunger. We have no shortage of food in this country and we have no shortage of food programs and we have no shortage of talent in terms of knowing what to do with food to feed people. So these are solvable problems. And if you can strip away sometimes the political extremes and the ideologues and just figure out, okay, what is the what do we need to do to get food to yeah. people who need it? You know, that's the way chefs think. They're very pragmatic, right? They're problem By solvers. Definition, they have to be in the yeah. kitchen. They have to be problem solvers. Uh, any, uh, you mentioned Jamie Oliver. Any uh, chefs here that you've seen either through the boot camp or through the experience with the foundation um, that you're particularly excited about the difference they're making in the community? I mean, so, so many. Yeah, it's and, hard and, to single anybody out. And many who are, who are in your world. I mean, Mary Sue Millican does amazing things. Asha Gomez, Sam Cass, Bill Telepath. I mean, the, 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 I am so impressed by this community. And there are so many calls on their time, but the generosity of spirit I see day in, day out is phenomenal. And the, uh, the genuine desire to give back, um, I, I think, is astounding. I always say, I, and I think it's true, but I always say that uh, I don't think there's any other community like the culinary community that gives back in such a consistent, no. organized way. No, I mean, I, you know, people in lots of different uh, occupations find ways to to make a difference, but I've really not seen anything like I agree. the culinary community. I agree. In terms it's, of, it's inspiring. In terms of the way they yeah. do this. You mentioned the Me Too movement, which, you know, hit the restaurant industry pretty hard, mm-hmm. uh, probably entertainment community, restaurant industry a few others. Where do you think we are as a, as a society and, and an industry now in, in dealing with that? Um, and, I, and I ask because at Share Our Strength, we have on our staff a, a lot of young women, and we've had chefs come in and talk to 
our staff about this and it's really been a topic of of interest i mean people really i think want to understand how not just the restaurant industry but how society yeah um you know deals with this i think there has been a sea change in terms of it being on the agenda it being spoken about it being not accepted there's these things are, are, are deeply systemic but i think it's been surfaced now and there's been a kind of a day of reckoning and and i, I don't see us going back from that and i think people are calling it out more regularly um so i think that's all for the good but i think there's a big lag that we need to kind of catch up on and i was just reading the stats again in terms of the number of uh, women and people of colour at at the C-suite level. And it's just kind of, it's plateaued over the last few decades. So although I think there's the, culturally, I think there's been a good shift, actually seeing those, seeing that shift translate into um, systemic structural change is to be seen. I think that politicians, among others, also look at the way private sector solves some of their own problems. And so there's also a degree to influence policy Mm -hmm. on these issues um, in terms of what we in the restaurant industry do. Um, We always ask folks uh, who know the restaurant and the culinary world as well as you do, if there are any kind of hidden gems in the community that, you know, we all know about the restaurants that are on the front page of the, the Times Food section every Wednesday, but are there some kind of hidden gems that you think people should know about? Or is there a go-to place that, you know, it's just like when you get to chill, you're just going to go and have a nice meal. Well, this goes back to our non-partisan conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I have to be very, you have to be very uh, careful. Do you know I live in uh, I, I live in West Chelsea, and there's just a little cluster of individual independent restaurants there, which is just there. My kind of uh, I pick up my daughter from school. We will just default to those, and that's that's kind of charming neighborhood restaurants. Um, and when you go to a restaurant, do you have to be like a food critic and you know almost be in disguise or, or are they going to fuss over you like crazy because they know that you're running the James Beard Foundation? I very actively keep under the radar um, as much as possible um, because A, I don't want to be disruptive but B, I mean it's, it's glorious because the chefs so kindly send things out from the kitchen yes. which is which is wonderful but uh, uh, you know, we are. I don't want to waste any food. <laughs> That's an important part of our ideology is is, uh, is to minimise food waste. So um, I actively try to, to avoid that that excess stuff. For people who uh, know about the James Beard Foundation or are impressed with the James Beard Foundation. They want to get, they're not a yeah. chef, but they want to get involved. Yes. Are there ways for people to support it? Absolutely. We have a national membership program. We just re- recently relaunched it. And um, we're so keen to get people to, to come and um, and come and join. Um, so it's it's from, from all levels up. Uh, and that enables you to be part of the James Beard family. It gives you preferential access to the dinners at the Beard House, but equally to all the events we hold around the country. Um, we have this wonderful program called Taste. America, where we're in um, 20 cities three times a year with different drinks parties and uh, and galas, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of ways of, of getting involved. But equally, just in terms of some of these um, movements that we're really trying to, to, to support, we have Waste Not Wednesdays, which is... Uh, Waste Not Wednesdays. Yes. Okay. So that's when we have our chefs who are aligned on our um, waste reduction initiatives, uh, introducing, again, you know, talking about top tips or, or recipes. So good to plug in that way. Uh, in terms of Smart Catch, in terms of thinking about where to dine 
actively looking up which chefs have been through some of our programs. That's another way of using your individual currency influenced um, to support the initiatives we're doing. So uh, to become a member, go to your website? Come to our website, yes. Which is? www.jamesbeard.org. Okay, so yeah. you can join there and you can find yes. out all these benefits. Please do. Yeah, other, it's great. Other things like yeah. that. Excellent. Who are some of the um, kind of natural allies for the work that you're doing? One of the things that I always realize and that becomes more true the longer I do the work that I've done at Share Strength is that we're not going to be successful by ourselves, right? But, I mean, if we, when there were 10 of us, it wasn't enough. Now we have a staff of a couple hundred. It's not enough. So we work with lots of partners. Who do you consider um, allies in this work uh, that need to collaborate more with each other? I think in every dimension, actually, I think you're right. We are, although we have, uh, you know, we're a national brand and we're well regarded, we're actually quite a small operation. There are like, it's a team of about 50. And so we know that if we want to really amplify our impact, we need to be partnering across all that we do. Um, certainly in so the likes of the Smart Catch, you know, we um, that is very much in um, keeping with the Monterey Bay system. We ha- we're not creating our own thing. We want to be using our platform to shine a light on the good work that has already been done. And again, in terms of some of the the policy areas that we port through the boot camps, we. We try to link up the chefs who are interested in a particular subject matter. Maybe it is childhood hunger. And then we will we will then introduce them to those organizations who are leading the charge in that field. So we don't want we don't purport to be experts in all these different areas, but we will um, we will channel people there accordingly. Also we have big commercial partners with American Airlines and Capital One. They they're good in terms of again using their clout and their marketing and their yeah. scale to amplify the messages that we want to take to the consumer and to provide opportunities for our aligned chefs to, to to have more profile too. And because of your uh, background as a brand builder and with the BBC and as a storyteller, will there, do you see there being a more kind of storytelling in the future of the James Beard Foundation than there's been in the I past? Love, it just feels like I would a love great that. opportunity, I particularly with you as a leader. I completely agree, Billy. And it, it's sort of, um, it's, if I had a, a blank check, <laughs> I, I would, um, I would really invest in content. I mean, I think, that you know, video is the medium of the digital age, uh, and and increasingly uh, podcasts, which I'm, I love. Uh, and I think you know, I just think even at the Beard House, where we have these chefs coming in with these incredible narratives, and this and and the 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 vibration energy of them being in their house and they're telling their story and they're crying and I'd love to be capturing more of that. Yeah. So um, it's something that we've been exploring. But again, that would absolutely have to be in partnership. We're not going to be getting into you know original production anytime soon. But partnering with um, with media companies and uh, and brands who can support that is something that is on the docket. Good. Well, that's something we should think about together for the yeah. future because we're thinking about it and we're not very far along. But um, you I have would this glorious podcast. That's st- uh, we have the podcast good. and we've got a team that focuses on storytelling. And um, you know, in this day and age, I think that's the whole ballgame yeah. in terms of pe- yeah. getting people to really what you do to get it to resonate with them. Indeed. Okay, so we've talked a lot about as we wrap up here. We've talked a lot about what the James Beard 
uh, Foundation is doing now. Anything around the corner that you can tell us about? Anything new coming down the pike? Any? Uh, well, this year is our um, 30th anniversary of the James Beard Awards. Uh, oh. So yes, so um, that is exciting. That and gives us they a be? great. They're in Chicago. They're in Chicago. We're okay. in Chicago through to 2027. So we're there for yeah. for the foreseeable. But this is a great opportunity to just take a step back and reflect on the industry and reflect on the players and the progress that has been made. Um, so we're really excited about that. that's coming up in May. And we have a, a James Beard Awards house for the first time in Chicago, which will give us a great arena to do a lot of our impact program work, etc. So you actually have a... For uh, two days. Uh, oh, oh, for two days in <laughs> yeah. Chicago. Okay. All right. So you haven't built the, Not yet. Uh, a James Beard Not house yet. there, but it could happen. It yeah. Like. But, uh, but in terms of having a center of gravity for all our activity over the awards weekend and bringing back previous winners and bringing back um, those who have really been in the vanguard of moving this industry forward, um, it's an exciting time to shine a spotlight wow. on that. Really exciting. Well, thanks for the great work that you do and congratulations, Thank you. On, Likewise. congratulations on this opportunity. I feel like your leadership is going to be a great thing Thank for, the, you, for the James Beard no, Foundation. I'm I really do. Profoundly lucky. We've been talking with Claire Reichenbach, the president and president and CEO or just CEO? Just CEO. Just yeah. CEO of the James Beard Foundation. They've got the James Beard House, the James Beard Awards, the Chef Boot Camp, uh, the Sustainable Seafood Program. Uh, you can learn all about it on their website and you be- can become a member of the James Beard Foundation, which would be, I think, a really rewarding and fulfilling thing. Thanks for being with us, Claire. It's Thank really been a so treat much, to have Billy. you on. My great pleasure. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. We hope you'll listen to this podcast and go to our website, uh, addpassionandstir.com, where you can find our archive of previous episodes and you can rate us and rank us and share this with your friends. For all of us at Share Strength and for our producer, uh, Paul Woody Woodle, uh, and the team of Debbie Shore and um, Kelly Griffin and everybody in the communications division at Share Strength, thanks for listening to Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall.